time now, and you can sign up to make your video as well. Very good. Well, I believe that's all we'll say about that. Uh, thank you for your patience. We have started our Start Here class three weeks ago. Today was the last Sunday for Start Here, and we have a new members class meeting over in the cafe in the teen room. And so I went over there and addressed them to open up this morning, and so that's why I'm late getting into church. I wasn't just sitting out drinking coffee, so you know, all right? And uh, very good. Take your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter number 1. Colossians chapter number 1. <clears throat> if you remember last week, we finished Colossians chapter number 1, and, um, but I'm not done with it, so I'm going to go ahead and preach it all again, because uh, I liked it so much. In all seriousness, we are going to take a review of chapter 1 this morning. And walk through the big pictures of what Colossians 1 is teaching us. And then make some pointed application, if I could, this morning for our local assembly. Um, as I was sitting down looking over chapter 2 and working into that this week, I came across some of my notes uh, that I preached in the past. They were a, more of a, a 10,000 uh, foot view. And I thought, Lord, maybe we need to stop and just remind ourselves of where we've been in Colossians 1 over the last 10 weeks. And uh, so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to jump into this in Colossians chapter number 1, verse number 21 through verse 29. If you found your place there, let's begin reading. You can read quietly as I read aloud, and we'll read verse 21 through 29. And you who, are want, who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hid from ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, as we continue into the service this morning, Lord, we want to thank you for each part of it already. Or thank you for the musicians that have led us in worship. Or thank you for uh, this reading of Scripture together now on two occasions that we as a church have been able to do. And then, Lord, the times of prayer that we've enjoyed together. And Lord, now we open the Word of God. And Lord, this morning we want to hear from the voice of God. And Lord, we ask you this morning that, uh, Lord, you would take what is said this morning and drive it deep into our hearts. That, Lord, may we hear and we may obey, uh, Lord, the words of Scripture this morning. May we take application to our lives today. Holy Spirit of God, do a work that I cannot do. Do a work in me. It needs to be done. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> As we look at Paul's admonition to the church at Colossae, and we begin to unpack all of this, the phrase constantly comes back, 
to sufficiency, to being enough, to being complete. Paul uses the word complete. He uses the word everyone. He uses the word all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. And these are words that are being used intentionally because they're combating a false teaching. Now, we're not given the clear statement of here is the false teaching of Colossae, but what we are given is Paul's admonition that go around the false teaching and kind of builds a fence work around it that we could then fill in the blanks and kind of try to understand what the false teaching was that was going on. And the false teaching that we, we get from that building that framework out is an understanding of an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism would have been higher thinking. The word gnosis means knowledge in Greek, and it's this higher thinking, this uh, better than thinking. And it was mixed with a little bit of Judaistic legalism of keeping Sabbath days and holy days, and, and then also uh, the idea of asceticism with a dash of just fleshly indulgence. And the frustration here as he addresses all this is they would see the fleshly indulgence and the asceticism. Asceticism is the idea of denying the flesh, of saying no to everything and taking long fasts. And generally speaking, when somebody tries to find this as a means to being better or being more enlightened, those that are in asceticism or self-denial end up in indulgence over here as well. And those who are indulgence over here in the flesh, they think the answer is more rules. And those with all the rules think the answer is getting rid of the rules. But here's the problem. Those that are living without rules, the answer is not rules. The answer is Christ. And those who are living with all the rules and denying the flesh with their rules, the answer is not less rules. The answer is Christ. And when you, when you think of this, Paul is trying to address this and point them all to Christ because the idea here is not higher knowledge, greater discipline, or less discipline, but the answer is Christ, that everything is wrapped up in the person and work of Christ. He is the sum and total of everything that we need. And so it is all in Christ. Nobody here is without the thought in your mind that you don't measure up. The fact is, the society we live in is preaching to us that we don't measure up. You can't go to the supermarket without seeing some ad somewhere of how to become, you know, uh, how to lose 50 pounds in three weeks or less, how to, you know, beautify your skin, how to be attractive to the ladies, be attractive to men, because you don't measure up, you're not good enough, you need something that we have to offer to make you enough. And we're all looking for this thing. And, you know, and, and if somebody comes out with a new diet pill or a new uh, beauty product or a new thing, that's going to solve our problem. And if we don't have hair, we want hair. If we have hair, we want it to be a different color. And we want it to be more. And it's just this frustration of always being told, you're not enough. Now, the mistake is the gospel comes along and people misread the gospel by saying, oh, no, you're enough. Wrong answer. The gospel doesn't tell you you're enough. The gospel says you're right. You're not enough. And I got bad news for you. There's nothing you can do to be enough. But Jesus is enough. And in him we are complete. In him we have everything that we need. That all knowledge, all wisdom comes from him. And so Paul is coming at this whole thing of saying that Christ is the sum and the end of where we're heading. He is everything. And so Paul sees himself as part of a big plan of God's making. 
There's a big purpose and a big plan that's being unfolded. And Paul is praying that the church at Colossae and us today by extension, because we understand that though the scripture is written for us, it was not necessarily written to us. This was written to the church of Colossae, a group of people who lived at a certain time, and it was written directly to them, but it was written for us as well today. And we can apply it to our lives, and Paul is writing to us saying that I want you to know Christ, and I want you to know him in his fullness. Paul wants no confusion on who Christ is or what Christ has done. And so he takes a large chunk of chapter number one that we've looked through already, and he says, this is the Christ we're talking about. We're talking about Christ, who is the firstborn of creation, the one who is over all things in creation, that all of creation bows to his will, that the winds and the waves obey him. We're talking about the Christ who is the firstborn of the resurrection, the one who is the head over the church and the body of the church belongs to him and he secures it and he redeems it and he calls it to himself. This is the Christ we're talking about. We're not talking of a Christ of your imagination. And we've said this over and over. The, the, the God of the Bible is not the God of your imagination. He's the God not of who you think he is. He's the God he says he is. And this is what we see him being on display. And Paul lays out this beautiful poetry of showing us who Christ is. And we've covered that in the weeks past. Paul wants everyone to know. But the work, the power, the knowledge are for us now and for all of us now and for all saints now that every one of us have access. It's not an elite group of people that have access to this knowledge or an elite group of people that have access to this power. We're not walking around Shelby Bible Church today saying, you know, see, uh, let's see, are you, a, are you a yellow belt or a brown belt? You, oh, you don't have access to the higher knowledge one of these days you might be a black belt Christian. That's not the way it works at all. But we have access to all the information in Christ now. He is present and using us in the moment. Christ is the only message we preach. He's the highest message. He is the complete total of the message that is being preached. And when we, when we say this, you say, well, preacher, uh, the highest message, isn't that kind of repetitive here? He's the total message and the highest message. You see, some would not have a problem with saying that Christ is the highest message. But they would not, they would have a great problem with saying he is the total sum of all the message. You see, what we want is we want Christ plus something. We want Christ plus, and when we begin to add anything to Christ, we are leaving Christianity, not abiding in the hope of the gospel. Christ is the highest message, he's the complete message, he's the only message. Paul reminds us of the work that was done in us and through us in verse number 21 down through the end of the chapter. And when he gets to verse 21... This is what we unpacked in the last couple of weeks. He gets very personal with us and about us. And he gets very personal with himself and his ministry and what he's called to do. And what we're called to do. And I want to take just a very uh, 100,000 foot overview of these verses. And then make some application statements if I could this morning. First off, in verse 21, look what he says again. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were enemies of God. The first thing we see is that he wants us to remember that we are enemies of God. In our natural state, we were not just broken and messed up, but we were rebels against the holy God. That we were opposing him on everything. He uses the words alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. That we were God's enemy. That God's wrath, and I've said this to you before and I remind us again, God did not save us from Satan. 
He saved us from himself. It was the wrath of God being poured out upon us. And this is the amazing thing, is that God, knowing what we were, his enemies in opposition to us, still came down and redeemed us to himself and made us his friends. He made us his children. And we're going to be seated together with him in heavenly places. We're going to be in his presence. And this is who we were. And we, we get the idea somehow or another that, that God and Satan are kind of like equally matched, you know. And it's a struggle to the end. No, 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 no. You and I were on the losing end of this battle. Satan is a created being. And if all that is created ceases to exist, Satan ceases to exist. And Satan was not, and I, I remember doing VBS, we got that going on this week. And I remember in times past, we'd have, you know, Jesus and Satan kind of boxing it out, you know, at VBS. And see who wins. It's a little bit sacrilegious, I know. So don't, don't hate me too much, all right? But I remember seeing that as a kid thinking, all right, man, I hope Jesus wins this week like I didn't know the end of the story already. But, you know, we get the idea somehow or another, you know, Satan weighs in, you know, here, here is at six foot one weighing 250 pounds, Satan, you know. And at six foot two weighing 275 pounds, Jesus. And after a long fault battle of five days at VBS, Jesus finally pulls it out in the end. That's not the way it is at all. But God, in his all-powerful, omniscient, all-powerful, uh, overarching plan before time began, he knew that Satan would be defeated and that he would be victorious. And by the way, we don't have to fear the outcome, church. And this is the amazing thing is that those of us that were enemies of God have now left the side of the enemy and been brought over to the side of the king. And we're on his team now. And we've been brought into his family. And so we were enemies he has reconciled us, verse 21. It's what he's done. In verse number 21, you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's called us to himself, reconciled, to be made at one with, to be put back together again. Is that God and us were separated by our sin and we were under the just wrath of a holy God. But Jesus Christ steps in, took our payment for us, gave us his righteousness, and now we are made at one again with him. We are connected with him. This is positionally we are right with God. And this morning he did this work. Not us. This is not a work done by me. I didn't reconcile myself with God, but I accepted the reconciliation that was offered to me. Now, I don't comprehend how that by faith in the work of someone who died 2,000 years ago, that all of my standing with God has changed. I don't comprehend logically how that happens, but friend, I got news for you. It did happen. That I was made right with a holy God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now my standing is right with God because he's reconciled me to him. We believe, and our belief moved us to action. What was that action? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by faith I called on him. And I was made right with God. And what a mystery it is that Christ is enough he reconciled us with him. Look what he says next in verse number 22. And he had reconciled us in the body of his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what he's doing. This is, he is and will present us holy. He is and will present us blameless and above reproach before him. I mean, you think about that. When, 
When you understand that one day you and I are going to stand before a holy God, we are going to stand in the presence of Almighty God, holy and blameless. You know you, right? I know me. And that's kind of hard to comprehend how he's going to do a work in me to allow me to stand before a holy God. I mean, Moses just comes up to a, a, a vision of God as a burning bush, and he's told, take the shoes off your feet, you're on holy ground. They weren't allowed to come into the most holy places unless through painstaking details were met to enter in one time into the presence of God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I are being made into the image of Christ. We are being conformed to him, and one day we will stand there blameless before him. And friend, that is not a work of us. That is a work of God in us. But then there's this paradox. So who's doing the work of sanctification? Sanctification, and the term we would use here is progressive sanctification. We sang a song in junior church when I was a kid, and uh, I would use it even when I taught junior church. But it says, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I'm going to be. But praise God, I'm not what I was. Right? And that ought to be the progression that we're going. Thank you, Lord, that you have changed me, you have given me a new standing, and I want to grow in your likeness. And so the question is, who's doing this work? And if you ask the Apostle Paul, so is Jesus doing the work of sanctification, or am I doing the work of sanctification? And he would have looked at you and said, yes. You see, because it's not one or the other. It's that Jesus is working in us that he might work through us, and as he works in us, it works out of us. You can't do one or the other, and it's not me doing the work on my own without him. But when he does something in me, it works out of me. You see, and we, we, we can miss this point, and so it's a progressive growth in this sanctification. We believe and therefore are moved to action in this work. And, and, and Paul, he addresses it this way in Philippians. What does he say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whose responsibility is that? Okay, you're asleep. It's 11 o'clock. The 9 o'clock is supposed to be asleep, all right? Uh, whose responsibility is that verse? Mine, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and do. Who's doing that work? God. And so, yes, I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because he's working within me. And he's producing it through me. So then faith is not works. This is that progressive growth. As he's leading us through this promise of redemption. It is faith, not works. Faith is not works. Look at this, faith. And don't miss this, church. Don't miss this. Faith will always produce works. Faith is always going to produce works in the life of somebody who believes. You see, you only truly believe what moves you to action. When I'm not moved to action, I don't really believe it. Faith produces works in the life of a believer. You may have works and have no faith. And this is the danger of going to church week in and week out and knowing the Sunday school classes. Let me say, young people that grew up in church, here's the danger that sets on you as you know the works of a Christian. But do you have the faith of the one and faith in the one who brought about those works? Because if all we do is put on church and we sing the songs and we go to church and we live a life and we say no to this and no to that and yes to this and yes to that, that doesn't ensure that we have faith. But I got news for you. When we have faith inside of us and there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will produce a life that is abounding in works. 
that will grow into a fruitful living, and that is going to be the, always the outgrowth of it. So faith is not works, but faith produces works. You may have faith, uh, you may have works with no faith, but you will never have faith without works. It will always produce it. We worked this morning not for a position in Christ, but from a position in Christ. And I've said this to you again and again, and I just want to make sure you don't miss this, that it is not me trying to earn my standing. And I missed this so much early on as a pastor. Is I, I didn't really think, I never would have at any point said, you know, I think I can earn my salvation. I never would have thought that. But I definitely thought there was a means to get some brownie points. And if I do enough good things, and I stay righteous enough, that I'm going to earn up a bank of merit in heaven. And here's the reality this morning, it is all of his grace that he is working through us, and it is not the work that we do, that I, I'm not striving for a better position. I've been given my position in Christ, and all I'm doing is I walk out obedience, I'm unpacking what that position means. And I'm growing into a greater understanding that Christ was everything. And he is everything, and he will be everything. And so what is the reality on the inside begins to show up on the outside. I had a thought last night as I was looking over my notes again. If you took an apple seed and it has no fruit, but everything that is necessary to produce fruit is contained in that seed. And the day you accepted Christ as your savior, you received Christ. And at that moment we see no fruit in your life. But everything that is necessary to produce fruit is contained in Christ. And the moment that I accepted him as my Savior, I had all I ever need. He's enough. The moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were complete in him. And that is exactly what Paul has been laying it out. Why? Why this complete? Why this growth? And by the way, the gospel never comes to us that it may stay with us. It comes to us that it may go through us. And here's the next statement. He said, him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. We looked at it last week and we saw so the fact that this is not a one-man show, but it's a joint effort that we proclaim Jesus together to every believer. We proclaim Jesus. We lift our voices together as we walk through the community and we proclaim Jesus to our neighbors and we proclaim him to our spouses. And by the way, don't fail to preach Jesus in your home. We proclaim Jesus everywhere we go and we lift his name up. And God forbid it ever be a time that we get so full of pride that we're embarrassed about talking about the scripture to other believers. It's almost a false humility. Somebody walks up and they're like, hey man, I just wanted you to know, I was reading in Colossians the other day and this really blessed my soul. And somebody like, who do they think they are talking about the Bible? Really? Here's the reality, all right? Let's just set this down on the baseline. Everybody here is full of pride. Can we just agree to that? That we're all full of arrogance, we're all full of ourselves, we like to talk about ourselves and it's only by the grace of God we ever shut up. Because we're full of ourselves. And it is only the ongoing work of the Spirit of God that makes me sacrificial to other people in the first place. And so when I go to speak to you about Scripture, if you think negative to me about talking about Jesus, then that's on you. And if I'm full of pride and I'm doing it to be seen of men, then I've already lost my reward. And that'll be on me. But let's not fear speaking of Jesus to one another. 
We talk about programs, we talk about plans, we talk about organization, we talk about all those things, but let's make Jesus the conversation in our homes and make him the conversation in our church and make him the conversation in our prayer groups and make him the conversation in the hallways because Jesus is the message and we are complete in him. This is the call of the church. It's a joint effort that we proclaim him. We don't proclaim anybody else. He's the only message we proclaim. And we proclaim, uh, we proclaim Jesus as he is to men as they are. I'm not trying to alter the message of Jesus to fit a society that is twisted and perverted. We're going to preach Jesus as he is to men as they are. Because by the way, that's the only hope they have. And by the way, it was the only hope that they had in Colossae or in Rome. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, we look at society around and say, man, it's so bad now. I don't know if Jesus can do anything. Can I remind you that they were capturing Christians and burning them at the stake when this started? Paul is writing this from prison. Nobody here has been locked up for your faith this week, right? So I think there's hope to preach Jesus to a lost world. And we preach him as he is. Jesus is still the answer. Andre Crouch wrote the word years ago, Jesus is still the answer, and though time and ages roll, Jesus is still the answer. He's the answer for your soul. Though some may say he doesn't fit with their philosophy, I know that Jesus is still the answer. He's always been, and he always will be. In every generation, Jesus is the answer. And we proclaim him. It is him we proclaim. And so then as a point of application this morning, this work we've been given to do, the work that has happened to us, the work that is happening in us, and the work that is happening through us as we walk out this Christian life, this work, let's be remember, reminded that this work is bigger than us. It's bigger than us, and I say it's bigger than any person here, and I think that goes without saying. Our race is done when God calls us home. But I'm glad to say this morning that the race is gonna continue. And nobody here is standing back saying, well, man, if that person dies, I guess the gospel goes with them. No. Keeps marching on. And the church will continue to go on. But by the way, this is bigger not only just than the individual, it's bigger than our church. Don't ever let us fall into the prideful assertion that Christianity began and stops with Selby Bible Church. But we're a part of a great army of people spread across the globe in every nation and language and tongue that proclaims Jesus this morning. And when I sit back and think about the fact that there are churches in places you and I have never visited, in dark jungles and in places where you wouldn't even recognize it as a church because there's no padded chairs and there's no PA system and there's no air conditioning, but a group of people who are filled with the Spirit of God and trusting in the Word of God gather together this morning to have their hearts edified by the Spirit of God. And that is church and by the way we're a part of that army and the church is bigger than any one local assembly as we march forward for the glory of God with banners marching through time and eternity accomplishing God's purpose and you say well does that mean that what we're doing is not important no it's of utmost importance why because God's given us this corner of the wall to build on so this is where God's called us to labor. And so let's put our roots down and let's labor and let's invest and let's disciple and let's grow and see what God would have us to do. But remembering that this is bigger than us. And this morning, I don't think the ministry should be this. All right, I'll do it if I have to. I don't want to, but I will. Always asking me to work with those kids. 
parents would take care of them. I wouldn't have to. That's not really the, the spirit we want welcoming people into the children's ministry. You know, all right, nursery again. I guess I will. You know, if ministry is a drain on us, it ought to be a red light on the dash that something's wrong. Either the ministry's overbalanced or our, our supply and source of joy has not been supplied. See, the ministry is not grin and bear it. There are rhythms of ministry. God gave us rhythms in a week, didn't he? There's supposed to be a day of rest along the way. You can't go all the time. There has to be breaks. You're like, oh, good, pastor gave me, gave me carte blanche to quit what I'm doing. I'm going to quit now. But by the way, stop is not a permanent position either. See, I mean, you, you can have the idea of working all the time, and if something that's working all the time is going to burn out eventually. And by the way, something that's not doing anything, what's the point? And, and we're called to labor in a cycle of rest and finding the joy of doing ministry. Because here's what I believe. I believe in the normal means of grace, and we can unpack that another time, that there is life-giving ministry power to do that work. Is ministry toil? Well, let's see what Paul says in verse number 29 of our text here. He says this, for this I toil struggling. Yeah, I think it's a toil. He said, I'm laboring. In verse number uh, one of chapter two, he said, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Yes, it's a struggle at times. Yes, there is exhaustion. Friends, this is Vacation Bible School Week. If you want to see the struggle, then come on Friday night and watch our teams as they make it through the last night of VBS. And you'll know there is struggle in ministry. It is a struggle, and it is taxing, and there is work. But I got news for you. Paul mentions in verse 29, struggling and toil twice. And three times he talks about energy, energy, power. And this is what God is working in us that he might work through us. I'm not talking about sitting around and we never get tired. We never get tired of being tired. We can get tired and we can go back to the one who energizes us again and we take another step in going forward. For the glory of God, not for our glory, but we find the rhythm. It's a big cause, there's a big harvest. You know, I think one of the things we have to do, if we're going to see this work as bigger than us, uh, I, we have to get some t-shirts made up that says it's not about me. I think we could all use one of those, right? It's not about me. And we ought to print it backwards so that we read it when it's in a mirror. It's not about me. I actually had somebody come up to me after first service and said, Pastor, I will finance the purchase of those shirts. And uh, we'll all have shirts. Shelby Bible Church, it's not about me. There's a good motive of saying, look, I'm not the end-all, be-all of this. So let's lay aside our pettiness, lay aside our spirit of control, lay aside our territorial Christianity. Well, I've got my zone and you've got your zone. You're not going to get on my area. You're not going to step on my toes. Someone asked a question about the transition we're going through right now with Pastor Caleb uh, stepping uh, in the process now, stepping out of our youth ministry and uh, uh, Brother Dylan coming in and stepping into leading our youth in the fall. And as he's stepping into that role, he said, well, you know, is it going to cause confusion or frustration? What if the kids still want to talk to Pastor Caleb? What if they need counsel? And I'm like, you know, here's the thing. We all have our responsibilities and our roles that we feel, but nobody's guarding their territory. 
Nobody's setting up boundaries saying, hey, don't you talk. I, I, I have the, these, these group of people are my people. No. We're laboring and pulling on the same rope together. What we want to see is Christ formed in our young people. We want to see it happen from the time they walk in the nursery all the way up to the time they graduate and go off to Bible college and they come back or go off to college and get their degree and come back and they see what God's doing in their life and drawing them and shaping them in the image of Christ. That's what we're trying to do with all of them. We're not defending territory. The work is bigger than us. The work, the work must be going on, ongoing in us. We mentioned that it is Christ that is sanctifying us, but we have a responsibility of laboring in the Word. I said to you last week, you may read the Bible without growing, but you will not grow without reading the Bible. You may pray without growing, but you will not grow without praying. You can put on a form without the substance, but the substance must be there if ever we would grow. And I challenge us today, you know the danger? The danger of pastors and word ministry, growth group leaders, all of us, is that the only time we open the Bible is when we're getting ready for growth group. The danger is the only time we open the Bible is when we're studying for a sermon. That's a danger. That's a danger that I fight, that you and I have to fight. The danger is the only time we're praying is when we pray publicly. There ought to be a struggle of going on of saying, I want to see this work done in me, and it must be something we're taking initiative on. Reminds me of the, the wife that come knocking on her husband's door early on the Sunday morning. Get up. Time to go to church. Husband, I don't want to go. And she goes, give me two reasons why I should go to church. Well, number one, it's Sunday, and number two, you're the pastor. We can all have a spirit of not feeling like we need it. But we need the word of God. We need prayer to grow and take disciplined action to see Christ being formed in us through his word and through prayer. Say, worship team this morning, if the only time you're singing is when you're on stage, something's wrong. Believers, if the only time we're singing is when we're standing together in a service on a Sunday morning, something's not lined up. We ought to be lifting our voice and praising him all week long. You say, well, Pastor, you haven't heard my voice. So if you've got to, put a cardboard box over your head, but sing. Sing. Do something to let your voice be heard and to lift your voice. God inhabits the praise of his people. What a wonderful blessing it is to sing to him. Make Christ inescapable in our daily walk. See it as a work through us. We are a part of God's eternal plan. We are not the end of this work. We are a conduit of grace. I hope that the gospel is not a dead end with you. I hope that the gospel came to you and will go to your neighbors and your family and your friends. Other people will hear it because you received the gospel. You see, it is a miracle that God would allow us to be a part of this work in the first place. He could do just fine without us. He doesn't need me to accomplish his ends. God can do what God is going to do without us. And he already said, he said, hey, if, if they hold their peace, the rocks will cry out. And so what is he telling me? I looked through scripture. He had roosters preach sermons. He had donkeys preach a sermon. And he said rocks were ready to go if we didn't want to. So basically what he's saying is that a donkey and a rooster could take my place and proclaim the glory of God but we get to be a part of it. 
We get to be a part of the work that God's called us to do. How can we boast in doing what God doesn't need us to do in the first place? All we can do is rejoice in the grace of God that allows us to be along for the ride and to be a part of the work that he's called us to do. I think we tell the stories of Scripture far too wrong. The feeding of the 5,000, for instance. We almost come at it like this. Well, you know, hey, don't you want to take your five loaves and two fishes and give them to Jesus? Because, man, if that little boy hadn't been there and given his lunch, what would have Jesus done? I don't think the five loaves and two fishes were hindering him from feeding the 5,000 or the lack of it. The miracle really is not that the 5,000 were fed. The miracle is that he bothered to use the lunch in the first place. Is that he would take our paltry offerings and allow us to be a part of it. What an awesome God that he includes us in his work. It's for others, for his glory. Paul is clear, I have a great struggle for you. He said, I'm struggling, but my struggle is not for me, it's for you. I want to see you growing and you conformed to the image of Christ. William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army in 1910, he was nearing the end of his days. Sickly and unable to attend their conference, it was on Christmas Eve and someone suggested, Mr. Booth, maybe you should send a telegram to be read at the gathering of all the people and uh, of the whole uh, ministry together. And he said he would do that and he wrote the telegram out and had it sent off. The hall was filled and the gentleman came to the stage and said, I have a telegram from General Booth. I want to read it for us. And he opened the telegram there in front of everyone and it had one word, others, others. Let that be our heart, that we are doing what we do for the needs of others. See, the task and the work that we are doing seems so overwhelming. And at times we can despair when we consider our meager resources. This is all I have. This is all we have. And by the way, this morning, I don't care how uh, well off we think we are or how well prepared we think we are. When you begin to consider the massive goal of seeing the church spread and the gospel go around the world, our resources are meager and limited. God has a great work he's called us to do. And our resources, our strength is only so much. We must remember, though, his work will go forward. I think of this story, and it always strikes a chord with me every time I read it and every time I tell it. And I think it kind of describes how I see ministry. A little boy comes into the community store back in a day before this generation, maybe a couple of generations back, where there was basically one store. And he goes down to the little shop, and he walks in, and I can hear the bell ringing as the little boy pushes the door open and the little boy walks in and there's a hole in the, over the patch of the knee and kind of a heavy coat on that's a little threadbare. He walks into that store and the wind's blustering on the outside. The shopkeeper sees him and said, can I help you, son? And he goes, I'm just looking for a gift for my brother. He goes, well, the toys are over there on that aisle. And he walked down the aisle and began to look for toys. And he was examining them all and finally he settled a little die-cast airplane. He walked up to the front of the store, very excited. He said, sir, I want to get this for my brother. And he goes, how much is it? And the owner looked at him and said, well, how much do you have, son? And he reached deep down into his pocket and pulled out some change and opened his hands and little lines of dirt were in his hands. And he held it up. And on that little extended palm, he had a quarter and two dimes and a nickel. 
And from that airplane hung a clear price tag, $2.85. And he said, is that enough? And he said, son, I think that'll do it. And he reached down and took that little bit of change, and that little boy walked out with his gift for his brother. And I think often we come to the Lord, and Lord, I'd really like to be a blessing to my neighbor this week. But I just don't know if I have enough to do it. Well, how much do you have? And I reach in and I hold up what I have. And it's by God's grace he reaches down and takes what I have and he uses it to minister to somebody else. And this is what we do week after week. We reach in. We don't have enough to cover it. We don't have enough to start it. And he takes what we have and we give him the glory for it. So as we walk forward this week, we walk forward boldly, commissioned by our creator, rooted in the word of God, founded on the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and we're destined for the throne of God. This is the work that we're heading for. This is the work we're a part of today. And what an awesome opportunity to be a part of it. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you that, Lord, you've allowed us to just be a small part of the work that you're doing in 2021. Father, we thank you equally this morning for the thousands and thousands of other churches across this nation and across the world that this morning opened the word of God and faithfully preached you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of that. And then, Lord, as we look back through eternity and time as it has unfolded, we thank you that we're a part of this mighty army that is marching forward to give you the glory and to lift up Jesus. Lord, may we keep the message clear, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. And may we proclaim it to every man. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it.